Good day, Stoke Nation. This is Marin from Marin Lazic Pod, and I'm stoked to have you here today. Um, I hope you're well. I hope you're crushing it, and I hope your Stoke tank is full. Uh, today, I'm pretty pumped uh, because today's pod is all about heart rate variability or HRV. Uh, I got Dr. Jay Wiles on. Uh, Dr. J is a clinical health psychologist, uh, but most importantly why I got him on is he's an expert on heart rate variability, uh, testing, tracking, and kind of using it to optimize your uh, recovery, sleep, performance, and stress. Now, I've been using uh, heart rate variability uh, myself for a few years now. Um, for me, something that was really uh, interesting and important is to make sure that I control my stress, uh, I don't overtrain and under recover, and yeah, just uh, optimize performance. Um, on today's pod, we talk all about that. Uh, we define what actually heart variability is, uh, why is it important. I was pretty stoked to talk about uh, female training because female biology is uh, much different than male biology, yet we train the same. Um, we talk about sleep, we talk about breath work, uh, nutrition, collagen. We kind of touched on a lot of stuff. So it was a pretty cool app. I'm pretty stoked about it. Jay's is awesome dude. Um, and it just, again, like I love it how people make something pretty complex um, easy to digest. Um, so yeah, uh, let's uh, let's just d- dig right into it. Uh, if you have any questions, please hit me up on DMs on Instagram, or you can email me. Um, but yeah, happy to help out. Um, what else is there? Oh, that's right. Um, we talk about blue blocking glasses in a pod, um, uh, and we talk about a band called uh, RA Optics. For those that are interested, uh, they do uh, support me and support my Stoke Nation uh, with a 10% discount. So if you do want to get your hands on those, uh, just use Marin10 uh, for your discount code. And yeah, that's it. Uh, let's get your froth on. Hey, Jay, um, welcome to the pod. How are you going? Hey man, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. It's it's exciting to be able to record a podcast all the way from you know the opposite sides of the world because it's what morning for you, nighttime for me now. Yeah, um, we're uh, what is it, eight a.m. at the moment here. Uh, yeah, sun's coming out. Exactly. Have you been to Australia? You know, I have not, um, and I, and it's one of my biggest regrets thus far in my thirty-two-year-old life. I'm a young, I'm a young guy, but I still love get out to Australia at some point and I will my wife would, and I would love to take our kids out there because we kind of have this dream trip planned of getting out to Australia and seeing New Zealand and kind of just hitting everything over there all at once I will definitely uh, have to host you when you when you decide to come or when the airlines airline stuff flying again so yeah <laughs> whenever that is yeah, yeah. um Jay um like the reason I got you on here is uh obviously you're a pretty pretty well knowledge about um you know all things health um especially HIV. I sort of stumbled on you by listening to, you know, Ben Greenfield and your podcast as well. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to kind of talk HIV. So before we start, I mean, for the audience, can you kind of give us a brief journey of how you got into a HIV training? 
sure thing. I would say that it was it was kind of organically and not all in one. So, um, you know, for those, those who may not have heard my name, so I am a clinical health psychologist. So my background is as a psychologist. And uh, as a health psychologist, basically what that means is that I was trained in my dissertation residency was all kind of encompassing my work with the medical population as opposed to like the clinical population from a mental health perspective. So I worked with a lot of people who had comorbid mental health related issues and physiological health related issues. And one of the things that it tends to lend itself being a health psychologist is just more exposure to integrative and holistic practices. And uh, so that means things like being trained in nutrition, being trained in things like uh, mindfulness meditation. Um, and then one of the things that I was trained in and had a lot of interest in was in heart rate variability training or the field of biofeedback, which comes from the greater field of applied psychophysiology, which is a mouthful but it's basically just looking at the interconnection between the mind and the body because we know that there's this strong bi-directional interconnection between these two, whereas what happens in the mind can affect the body and then vice versa. And so I actually, uh, when I was doing training um, for the Department of Veteran Affairs here in, in Richmond, Virginia, I won't say here, I'm actually in South Carolina now, but when I was doing my training, uh, I worked in a completely integrative pain center for veterans. So our clinic had things like acupuncture, massage therapy, uh, mindfulness meditation, a nutrition clinic, and then also one of the greatest things that I love doing was a biofeedback clinic. And so a lot of people aren't kind of exposed to biofeedback or heart rate variability training or any of the other modalities of biofeedback. And so a lot of it is just education um, on, on kind of that's what we provide to our veterans, I should say, is education. And then it's followed by training. So for me, um, I, I really became interested because I, you know, in working in kind of more conventional clinics where I wasn't using heart rate variability training or biofeedback, I would see like this level of subjective change amongst many of my patients. So they would say, you know what, I think I'm feeling better. Like maybe my stress went down from a seven to a five during session. And there is a good quality to that qualitative data there. I like hearing that subjective data. But one of the most beautiful things about biofeedback is it takes both that qualitative data that you get from the subjectivity of the individual and it pairs it with quantifiable data. So it's no longer just I subjectively feel better, but look at the change that's taking place in my physiology. And I'm sure we'll jump right into the you know physiology and the psychophysiology of things and how these are interconnected. But basically, I was so passionate about the data that I got from it, how robust it was from a research and a clinical standpoint, but also too, just anecdotally, my patients were getting better. They were reducing their overall level of pain. Um, they had a reduction in stress, a reduction in anxiety. All of these things were following. And so for me, I was like, okay, let me get, you know, let me dig deeper into this field, which ended up resulting in me getting a lot more extra training than what most health psychologists, if, if, a lot of them don't get any, but for me, I, I pursued it and got board certified in biofeedback. And then I got board certified in heart rate variability biofeedback. And then I think just kind of throughout the years, the last few years especially, because heart rate variability or HRV has been booming so much, both in the performance aspect and then also, too, from the stress mitigation and nervous system balance perspective, I, I just have, have uh, people have found out that I have a niche in this area. And, I mean, also kudos to Ben. I mean, Ben and I are good buddies. So Ben Greenfield was like, yeah, let's get you on to talk about heart rate variability. And so that gave me some exposure as well. And so a lot of my time is spent um, doing a lot of education and consulting and working with both performance athletes as well as just kind of the everyday individual who's looking to increase their HRV or learn how to modulate their nervous system. So 
I know that was a bit of a mouthful, but I figured I'd unpack it as best I could. <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. And um, when I was going through your website, one of the things I really loved uh, about your approach is it seems that you do, like you, you help people through inside out, meaning you, 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 you work through a cell, see what's going on there, get it stronger, and then, you know, longevity. And I guess traditionally we go from outside in. You know, like we, we right. like, oh, well, I just want to lose weight and get fit. And yeah, and, and it's, it seems that doesn't seem like it's working the traditional methods. Um, mm-hmm. So on that, let's jump into it. So heart rate variability, um, it is kind of like, I mean, I've been, you've been doing it for a long time, but it's sort of the newish thing for a lot of people. Um, what mm-hmm. is it? Yeah, so it's something that's been around for a long time, but hasn't gotten kind of the reputation until more recently, I'd say. Maybe in the past decade or so, it's gotten more notoriety, and that's because we have more robust research to kind of demonstrate its level of efficacy, both in the utilization for performance and recovery, but then also, too, from more of like a clinical um, uh, perspective. And so, uh, you know, it, even though it's been around for a, a while, um, and even though it's gained notoriety, one of the big things that occurs for a lot of people is that it draws a lot of confusion. So people always ask me, like, what is it? Like, explain it to me in simplistic terms. Like, they always ask me, like, is this a good number? Um, should I be striving for this number? Like, how does this compare to others? And so it's great things that we can, you know, certainly unpack tonight um, or this morning for you. But one of the things that I, I always like to say is that when we kind of look at it at its very core, what heart rate variability is, is as it says. It's the variability in our heart rate. And so a lot of people will ask, well, like, why is this important? Like, why do we want to have variability in our heart rates? It seems like having heart rate variability kind of sounds dangerous. It almost sounds like it's arrhythmic. And in some ways it is arrhythmic, but it's an arrhythmic in a good way. And I'll explain that here in just a second. But we kind of define heart rate variability as the time, and this is kind of the basic foundational difference or, or definition, it's the time difference between adjacent heartbeats. So every single time we have a heartbeat, there is a time lag in between those heartbeats. And we know that the heart doesn't operate like a metronome. So a metronome is very consistent, and the heart does not operate that way. And that's the biggest confusion of most people is they think that, oh, heart rates, you know, should be kind of very consistent, kind of work like a metronome. And that is, in fact, like completely opposite. The reason being is because the heart has to manage so many different functions of the body. So when we think about what's going on in our body at any given moment, we're talking about trillions of operations. And when I say that, I'm not speaking, you know, in hyperbole or exaggerate. I'm talking about trillions of operations within the body. And so the heart has to keep up with it, as does the lungs, as does the brain, as does other organs. But one of the things that we know about the heart is that a good resilient heart or one that has a high level of heart rate variability is adjusting to its environment accordingly. So it could be that the environment is one that is stressful and stress in the moment is going to cause the heart to decrease in heart rate variability. The reason being is because the heart is basically saying like, holy crap, something is going on that's not really good right now. And so all I need to to do right now is self-preserve, is to self-protect. And so it regulates and heart rate variability goes down. And this is why heart rate variability is a great window or insight into our overall nervous system functioning. And that brings up a whole different topic of, of our nervous system. But it's, it's a window or insight into our nervous system functioning because it can give us a good gauge on how well we're recovering, our level of performance, but then also to how well are we adjusting to stress. And so uh, heart rate variability, again, at its core is just looking at those time differences between each adjacent heartbeat but it holds a lot more power than just looking at that time. There's a lot more um, that's, that's there that we can unpack. But that's it in its basic form. 
So, so basically, um, I guess most of us that were paying attention in the biology in high school, and uh, you know, heart was meant to go. It's not the high spikes. It's a it's a, it's a sp- space in between those beats. Is that right? Kind of like so the real, spikes. Yeah. Yeah, those spikes are called R waves, and basically the distance between R waves and the spike in an EKG, and that is that is the the time d- domain. And what we do is we take kind of a snapshot. Generally, around two minutes is the least amount of time we'll take, and within two minutes, we utilize statistical analyses and algorithms to detect the amount of standard deviation between those time periods. And I don't want to get like too deep in the woods on the mathematics of it. But basically, we just take a large frame of time um, in, in heartbeats perspective, and then we look at what is the ab- basically what is the average between those heartbeats? Um, is it a, a, a very small number or a very large number? And in general, the larger the number, the better. But not always. There's nuances to this, just like there's nuances to anything that's going on in our biology. But in general, from a recovery standpoint and from a nervous system standpoint, we want to see a, a, a higher HRV as opposed to a lower one. Yeah, it's cool because I think sometimes people get confused with heart variability and heartbeat. Um, yeah. So, um, what causes heart variability? I get. I guess what what causes the um the the, the shorter distance and the longer distance? Yeah. So there can be so many things. I mean, we we are really talking about a trillion different variables that can affect it. But um, kind of at its most easy to understand kind of uh, mechanism, if we look at this from kind of like a nervous system balance perspective. So when we talk about nervous system balance perspective, we're mainly focusing on the autonomic nervous system. So these are the bodily processes that are occurring automatically and were once thought, thought to be not within our voluntary control. So it was basically we had you know, no ability to control these mechanisms. We found out that that was very incorrect. We're able to control them a lot more, which is what I do within you know, my work. Um, but we were able to control them a lot more than what we thought. But uh, basically, uh, what we see is that there are two branches of our autonomic nervous system. We have our sympathetic side and our parasympathetic side. The sympathetic side you can think of as kind of being like the gas pedal. It's like the fight or flight response. It really helps us to kind of attack what's kind of in front of us or flee whatever is in front of us. And it's very useful. We need it. On the other side, which is not linear, and these things don't these things work in tandem with one another, but there's not one turned on, one turned off. And that's another thing that confuses people is they think that, oh, I'm, I'm sympathetically driven, that means that my parasympathetic's turned off, or I'm parasympathetically driven, my sympathetic's turned off. That's not the case. You wouldn't want that to happen in either way, uh, but we can get to that in a little bit. But basically, these two sides of the, of the autonomic nervous system are what causes heart rate variability to fluctuate. And it just depends. How much gas do you have on or how much brake are you engaging in at that moment? And so we know, again, one of the things that I like to stress is that a low heart rate variability during certain situations is very protective and very adaptive. So just because you have a heart, low heart rate variability when you're exercising doesn't mean that's a bad thing. That's actually a really good thing that can actually help you to perform better. Um, however, a lot of people kind of confuse that as, oh, no, this isn't good, like something's going on wrong here. But that's not the case. But basically, those two levers, that gas pedal, the sympathetic nervous system, and the parasympathetic nervous system, the brake pedal, they modulate through something called the vagus nerve, or something we call vagal tone. That's our 10th cranial nerve that runs and innervates both our heart, our lungs, um, and other organs in our body and runs up our spinal cord and into our brain. It's kind of like a control center for our relaxation response. 
But all of that is mediated by that parasympathetic and sympathetic side, which will then result, with, with, depending on which one is turned more on than the other or which one's being modulated at that time, it will control uh, HRV number. Um, and it does so through a lot of biochemical cascades. And, you know, just depending on how deep you want to get into it, uh, we can get into the biochemical aspects. But that's the basic mechanical aspect through that autonomic nervous system. So would I be um, wrong? Like, uh, am, I, am, I, am I simplifying it too much if you say, like, HIV is essentially um, how stressed your system is? Or I like to joke around and say, you know, how stoked you are if you're, you know, uh, stoked things right. fall or empty. Is that kind of sure. why you would use heart variability to see how, I guess, if you're in that yeah. real sympathetic or, parasymp- or fight or flight or rest and digestive type zone yeah i think i think so i don't think it's an oversimplification at all i think that it's you know the 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 field of heart rate variability is very dense like psychophysiology is very dense from a from a biochemical perspective from a biomechanical perspective but in the end like it's a simple concept um it's basically looking at overall nervous system resiliency so basically how strong is your nervous system and i always tell my athletes kind of you know one or two one or two things i tell them like it's either the signal that says you're ready to kick some ass or it's the signal that says, take a break. And so it's a really good uh, gauge, for, especially from a performance perspective, on just kind of a basic foundation of kind of where's your nervous system, because we know that our nervous system is going to be the key driver to success from a performance standpoint. And so we want to make sure that it is kind of in the optimal state and not to tax um, from psychological stress, from physiological stress, because that can result in a cascade of different problems, especially you know, resulting in things like physical injury or kind of like burnout or HPA dysregulation with the HPA axis, cortisol dysregulation, inflammation. This is, a re- again, a really good non-invasive way to kind of measure a lot of these things. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so that kind of explains why it's so important, right? Uh, to, yeah. Guess, um, and what, um, I mean, we, we, you mentioned before, and so the higher the number is better. The lower the number means you're probably stressed, but... Um, and I know you probably get this question all the time, and it's a big question. But what what are kind of the good numbers? Like what numbers we should we be looking for? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, to clarify, it's a general rule of thumb, right? That the the higher the HRV, the better. Uh, the lower, that's kind of the more compromised individual. So one of the things that we know is that um, when we talk about something like cardiovascular health, so we know that HRV, especially a measurement called SDNN, which is the standard deviation of normal beat intervals, which is very common use time domain indice of HRV. So a lot of people, like when they look at their whoop strap or their bio strap or their aura ring, they're probably going to see either SDNN or another one that's predominant is RMSSD. It's another form of measurement. And so it's good to know kind of what you're measuring because those are have different norms, um, actually, when we look at the populations of studies. But one of the things that we know is that SDNN is the uh, gold standard marker for 24-hour measurements. And again, that's 24-hour, not short-term measurements. And so when we look at like the cardiac population, we actually know that when we look at that SDNN marker, it is the greatest predictor for future heart attacks, especially if you've had a heart attack in the past, by looking at that number. What is the general rule of thumb? Anywhere um, over 100 is considered to be kind of like healthy, like optimal. Um, anything of from 50 to 100 is considered kind of like the compromised um, population. And then 50 or below SDNN is considered like at a, at a, at a much higher risk. 
Uh, now, again, this is a 24-hour reading, which most of us are not getting. We're getting like, you know, two, two five to five minutes or so. And we're, most of ours, we're looking at RMSSD. So WHOOP is RMSSD, um, Aura Rings, RMSSD, a couple of the other ones, too, that are predominant. I know Apple Watch is SDNN. So if people wanted to kind of look at their Apple Watch. Now, just because you have, let's say, like a score of 50 on your Apple Watch doesn't mean that you're at risk for a heart attack. Remember, we have to look at the way that circadian rhythm plays into HRV, which is why you need a 24-hour recording. So that's the gold standard. Now let me give more of the real and practical what most of us actually measure when we put on, you know, a Polar H10 chest strap or wear, you know, an aura ring. So the numbers um, from a normative standpoint, um, are published. So a guy whose name is Frederick Schaefer, um, he's part of um, a, a huge association for HRV biofeedback, but he ran a clinical study and put together a meta-analysis on this and looked at all of the, um, all of the norms from an RMSSD perspective. And it really is it's highly variable, variable depending on age. So I, what I would recommend is looking at that Frederick Schaefer article or listen to my podcast that I did for Ben Greenfield where I list all of the norms. Um, because it's it's very extensive because it goes by age range. So age is a huge factor. Now, what do I tell people general rule of thumb is that I don't want us to do as much normative comparison with our short-term HRV numbers as I want us to do self-comparison. Now, we know from a recovery and a performance, athletic performance, that is, perspective, that there is no greater comparison than self-comparison. So we want to look. Now, in general, a general rule of thumb is, is I tell people that when your HRV after a nighttime reading is 20% below your normal reading, so 20%, then that is when your level of risk for injury goes up substantially. So we tell people that if, you know, you are prepared to do like, you know, some metabolic conditioning or you're going to do some high intensity interval work that day and you know it's going to be very demanding physiologically and from a nervous system perspective, I tell people to kind of maybe chill that day. Uh, and I don't even mean take a rest day, but maybe do a lighter workout, maybe go for more of a walk or, or something like that as opposed to hitting a high-intensity interval training or, you know, Metcon. So that's what from a performance perspective. Now, self-comparison can also be really good from a clinical perspective or more like a stress, anxiety, depression perspective because we want to get, get a good gauge on what our HRV is and that number is important, but what is not nearly as important, what is m way more important, I should say, than that singular number, that baseline number, is our ability to modulate HRV. So our ability to control HRV, understanding of kind of what that number means in context. And so we have to have it in context. So what I tell people, uh, you know, before they even start is that you're going to get that number, you're going to get that baseline number, and it's important, and you can do a normative comparison by looking at, you know, some of those research studies that I've mentioned, but that's not nearly as important as your ability to kind of control and modulate your HRV up and down, and I do like to say up and down. Now, for most people, it's going to be more important to control it in an upward direction, and that's what I do is I like to train a higher HRV because higher HRV is more associated with vagal tone. Um, it is associated with vagal tone. So we know that when we can stimulate that 10th cranial nerve, the vagus nerve, then we can initiate more of a relaxation response um, due to, uh, you know, redu reduction of blood pressure, um, kind of influencing our baroreflex and our cardiovascular system, and then also releasing things like acetylcholine and dopamine to help calm us down. So one of the things that I, that I like to say is, is that don't focus too much solely on that one number because that's going to really discourage people. What it, the, the thing I like to focus more on is, okay, so how, what can we do to modulate that number, to increase that number, whether or not it's acute and transient or it's more long-term? 
But what we know is that if you affect change in the more short term and the acute and transient means, it'll affect change in the long term. HRV works like a thermostat. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like blood pressure in that, in that sense. Um, that's awesome. You mentioned, um, obviously, with age, it will change. But I'm just curious, what about a female biology? Um, is there a difference between female and males in terms of, obviously, males having more steadier hormones and girls mm-hmm. going a bit more variable? Like, yep. What, right. what, what should females or girls kind of look out for? Is it the same or is it a bit different? Yeah, yeah no, it's actually very different. Um, and the reason, excuse me, the reason it's very different is because of, of 28-day cycles. So what we see actually is that individuals, females, um, during their menstruation period will actually have a significant drop in HRV because menstruation is a significant stressor on the body. Um, and then there's a lot of hormonal changes that lead to psychological stress during that period of time as well. So I've had a lot of my female clients um, who will ask me, so like, why is my HRV dropping by like 20 or 30 points um, or like a huge percentage, sometimes as much as 30, 40, 50 percent. And a lot of times I'll ask them, I'm like, I mean, you know, it's all, it can be an awkward question sometimes when I'm like, is it, basically, is it that time of the month? Is it menstruation time? And almost always they're like, yeah, it is. And then I have to explain, okay, we have a cascade of hormonal changes that are occurring right now alongside a lot of biochemical changes um, and heart rate changes um, and, and cardiovascular changes. And because of that, it will cause a significant drop for many, uh, for many women. Now, what, what's great is, is that it's very acute. It's very transient. We see that once they get past their menstruation cycle period of time, then it will go back up. And a lot of times it's also too, it's, it's, it's pre-menstruation as well. And so premenstrual kind of fluctuations in HRV. And then when they're actually on there, uh, in the midst of their menstrual, menstrual cycle, then we'll see HRV isn't significantly different from their baseline. So it just depends on the, on the female, but it is very different. So you have to watch out for that. And I get that question all the time by, by women. And what about on the other side and ovulating, um, is it going to start spiking up or does it generally spike up? Or again, I know it's individual, but uh, where I'm, what I'm thinking is, I guess a lot of girls tend to follow guys' programs and a lot of PTs, mm-hmm. male PTs tend to train the same way they train them. But like there's got to be, not, I don't want to use biohacking, but like knowing the cycle and I feel like there's got to be, obviously, don't train as hard when you're about, you know, when, when it's that time mm-hmm. of month because you drop. But is there a spike or is there a window of opportunity to train maybe a bit harder to make most of hormonal changes and a higher HIV? Or yeah, so we, you know, when I, yeah, it's a good question. When I see it dip typically in HRV, um, what I see it kind of typically just getting back up to baseline. I don't see kind of like this extreme, you know, fluctuation yeah. in an upward direction. I'd have to look more into the research of that. Um, you know, a lot of the women that um, train with me and do HRV training, they're just happy to get, you know, <laughs> through menstruation cycle and get their HRV back up to baseline. But, um, you know, one of the big things that you have to kind of track to is, is, is you kind of have to look at it. So if you're saying it again, you know, if you're using like an aura ring or something that's going to kind of just give you like a one time, you know, of day type of reading, it's not giving you like constant feedback like many of the devices that I use. It's a little bit harder to tell because I don't have enough data points. Um, but it'll be interesting to kind of look at that more to see if there's any uh, more more or less kind of like a increased fluctuation or spike there. It'd be interesting to see if there's a study or how many injuries females athletes or you know female have been injured during their periods. Like if there's any like 
yeah. colorized. Oh, I, I would be, sh- I, I would be shocked if there, if there isn't one out there, there probably is. Um, mm. and, and I would be shocked too, if I, if we didn't see an increased means of, of, of injury there, it would just make total sense because again, HRV is like the, one of the best windows that we have into recovery. And so if it's low and, and especially if these women are like doing a lot of metabolic conditioning, so if they're doing like a lot of like CrossFit workouts and it's very glycolytically demanding, it's just very demanding period on the body. Um, and I didn't mean to use the word period while we're talking about the period, <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that I think um, I would be surprised if it didn't just on an HRV level. Yeah, because yeah, a lot of girls wouldn't even know about this. And that's why I'm stoked to have you right. on. It's like just kind of came to me. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay, we, we spoke about it. Um, and we spoke about a bit of trans. But um, what are some of the factors that affect, like what are some of the things that we do day to day that will affect our heart variability in a negative, but then also like a positive way as well? Yeah. So one of the things that I always want to differentiate is that, uh, you know, we live in a world of a, chron- of a state of chronic stress. And so for many of us, you know, when we're born as, as babies, kind of things are operating, um, for most of us, men, not everybody, but they're operating on a fairly stress-free basis. But then some point in life, um, we haven't really determined where exactly. It might be a progression or it might just be kind of like this, you know, you know a singular time and period. I don't know. I would argue it's probably more of a progression that we start to kind of take on more stress and then we kind of live in it uh, from kind of more of a, of a chronic type of state. We know that acute stress is great for us, actually. You know, eustress is the type of stress that helps us to perform. If you think of like the Yerkes-Dodson model for performance, like we want that a certain level of stress or an alertness and arousal to increase performance. But then once it becomes chronic and sustained or gets too arousing or too stressful, then performance goes way downhill. And so, you know, when we look at kind of our daily life, a lot of us like to compound our stress. And what does that mean? That means kind of us, us taking stress and then just kind of pushing it to the side. Or from an athletic and performance perspective, we stress our bodies out and we don't properly recover and heal the way that we should. And so when we are encountering chronic stress or especially kind of acute stressors, we're going to see HRV go down. And like I mentioned earlier, HRV kind of works like a thermostat. So when you're young, uh, for most people, and again, you know, if you have a background, especially if you're young of trauma, of kind of high stress and high anxiety environments, then this is not going to be kind of uh, something that particularly resonates. But for a, a bulk majority of people who didn't experience anything like that, uh, one of the things that we see is that HRV, when you're, especially in your adolescence and teenage years, is at the highest it will ever be. So, you know, off these scores, like RMS, the, the RMS, RMSSD scores, of like an upwards of like 150, 160, 170, uh, sometimes over 200 uh, for these kids. But then when stressors kind of hit and they become chronic and they tax our environment, um, and by environment, I should also say tax our body, then our nervous system adjusts accordingly. Because our nervous system actually doesn't know the difference between financial stress, academic stress, work-related stress, exercise stress, and you being chased by a mountain lion. And that's just the kind of the honest fact about it is that, that the uh, uh, mammalian part of our brain, the less evolutionarily evolved part of our brain, receives a signal from an, our, our autonomic nervous system. And the signal that it receives if we are being chased by the mountain lion is the same signal it receives if uh, you know, we have financial stress or if we have work-related stress or we're, you know, we're stuck at home with COVID-19. And that's pretty bizarre if you think about it, is that we're kind of having the same bodily or physiological response. So what does that mean? Well, we need to kind of retrain it. We need to retrain it to say, you know what, 
I, I'm not being chased by a mountain lion right now. And we have to use our autonomic nervous system to communicate that message as well as our cerebral cortex or the more kind of uh, evolved part of our brain. And so to kind of come back to your question, I wanted to kind of set the stage there, but to come back to your question, like when we encounter stress throughout our day, again, physiological or psychological stress, it taxes the nervous system to say there must obviously be a mountain lion that's chasing us right now. And so in order for you to kind of survive this threat that's in front of you, all oh, let's floor that gas pedal. No need to press that brake right now. Let's floor that gas pedal. Again, this can be really good for us, right? Like we need this. However, on the flip side, once the threat is gone, because maybe there is a threat, but once the threat is gone and we go home and we're having, you know, dinner and a glass of wine with our family, you would think that the gas pedal should come off and the brake should start to engage because, hey, we're away from the threat, but it doesn't because the body wants to protect itself. It's all about self-preservation. And because it's been told, you know, decades after decades for many of us that there's no need for us to press the brake pedal, we're always going to be chased by this mountain lion, then it just stays floored. And so what causes HRV to go up is learning how do we go ahead and relinquish control of that gas pedal, that sympathetic fight or flight nervous system, and engage the brake a little bit more. And so I always kind of uh, teach, you know, this idea of modulation. So increased level of self-awareness, so self-awareness of when our HRV is going awry and when we're stressed, and then we learn self-regulation. So what do we do about it? Like, how do we actually take this and put it into something that's actionable? And what that means is you know, a bulk variety of things. I teach a lot of different techniques, you know, ranging from breath work to meditation to different biohacks, cold therapy. There's a lot of different things that I teach for this. Uh, but most people just don't know that they can modulate and take control of their autonomic nervous system. So what I always say, too, is that, again, what I'm talking about is very complex from a psychophysiological standpoint. Um, and, and, and the science is fun to talk about. I love geeking out on it. But what's great is that the resolution, the way to solve it, is very simplistic. Mm. Um, it is something that um, is innate and is a part of us, but we just disconnect from it. And so because we disconnect from it, then, then it, it basically just has us feeling like we have no tools. And so I'm all about teaching tools to kind of harness control back over the nervous system. Um, on that, like if you were training me, uh, and I rock up to you and I'm in, um, in low HIV red, um, what sort of stuff would you do with me? And also an opposite, if I'm in green, if I'm ready to go, like, would you flog me or, um, what's yeah. kind of a, what would you sort of suggest on if you on a Yeah. Right. You know, one of the things that I do, a part of my kind of clinical consulting is that I do a vast assessment of, of your HRV by looking at a lot of data, um, because I don't want to take one snapshot. It's kind of like, um, you know, with many things that we measure in the medical field, we don't want to just take one little tiny snapshot and say, okay, well, that must mean that that's, that's what that individual is always carrying around with them. That's not the case. It's like blood pressure. Yeah. Like if I checked your blood pressure right now, um, I'd get one reading. And if I checked it 10 minutes from now, I might get something totally different, like not even in the same ballpark. And HRV can look like that, but we do know that HRV shows up in trends. So the first thing that I do is I always look at trends and gain a lot of data. So I utilize a little device. I actually have it sitting over here. It's a wearable EKG by a company called Leaf Therapeutics. And it collects data all day long. It just sits right underneath the left breast. And then you wear it all day long. It collects data and also provides you with biofeedback, which I'll talk about here in just a second. But I like to kind of look at trends, look at data, kind of gauge your baseline. And then there are different types of regulatory techniques or ways to self-regulate. 
so with this device, one the one that I wear, the Leaf Therapeutics, what's great about it is that it uses what we call haptic feedback or vibration feedback to where after it gauges your baseline, once your HRV drops too low or well below into the like 20th percentile, it'll actually vibrate. And the reason it's vibrating is to alert you to say, hey, guess what? Your HRV is low. And I always tell people that's a moment to check in and ask why. Well, am I exercising? You can expect HRV to be low. Am I eating? You can expect HRV to be low. Am I in a meeting with a, with a boss who's yelling at me or I'm like typing an email or reading an email? Okay, this is where we can learn to self-regulate because I wouldn't tell people to self-regulate their HRV if they're exercising um, or if they're eating. Not really a need to. Um, eating is a little bit different. That's a little bit finicky, but we can talk about that later. Uh, but what I would say is that, okay, now that you're, you're able to self-regulate, let's do it. Well, we know actually one of the greatest ways to self-regulate HRV is through breath work. Um, there is nothing within the research that is stronger than breath work. And so when I say breath work, I mean talking about the biomechanics of breathing, the biochemistry of breathing, and the cadence of breathing. So I work very closely with a guy named Patrick McCune. He wrote the book Oxygen Advantage, and he talks a lot about the importance of these. But when we're stressed, uh, we typically will breathe what we call thoracically or clavically. So that's up in the shoulders or even up in the chest, too. That's the predominant place. And if you think about that, when we're breathing from our chest, when we're stressed, and we have all of our intercostal muscles you know, in our rib cage, we have our sternum, you know, we have uh, you know, the, you know, the, the muscles that are up here in our chest, our pecs that are kind of keeping air from expanding in our lungs. So I teach people to breathe diaphragmatically. So breathing from the belly and, and making sure that the breath isn't just kind of this shallow, short breath up in the chest. So that's one thing uh, in regards to the biomechanics. Number two would be learning uh, about cadence and, and slowing your breathing down. We know in order to, um, to maximize heart rate variability, for most people, that's generally getting down to about six and a half breaths per minute, all the way down to four and a half breaths per minute. And somewhere in between is probably the, the area that optimizes your HRV the most. So I help people, number one, to find that, to find what is their, what we call resonant frequency rate. So what is the most optimal breathing rate to um, maximize HRV? So that's one thing that I, I like doing. And then I have people practice. So I would have you constantly practicing this because practicing is conditioning the thermostat. Because the body is going to experience that and it's going to release a lot of endorphins, acetylcholine and dopamine, and it's going to be like candy. It is going to say, well, this works. Like This helps to relax the body. And we're going to see HRV raised up. And that's because, again, we're increasing vagal tone. Now, one of the things that I will mention, sorry, my headphones came unplugged. There we go. Uh, one of the things that I'll, I'll mention in regards to vagal tone is that uh, you know, a lot of people get a little bit more confused on kind of like what is stimulating vagal tone? How do we like identify vagal tone? But what I would say too is that like the mechanism of kind of how we're stimulating vagal tone doesn't matter. We want to kind of, yes, increase HRV, which is a great measurement of vagal tone for, for the most part. But we also want to just think subjectively. So am I doing this and subjectively feeling better? Am I feeling more relaxed, more able to kind of take on the threat the next time it comes or whatever is kind of in front of me now? So I love breathwork practices. I think that's kind of like a huge thing. And then there's a lot of things in regards to nutrition that I work with people on. There's a lot of things in regards to sleep. Sleep is probably the thing that I like to help people optimize the most. Because if you're not, if you're not sleeping well, then you're not recovering well. So you can never expect your HRV to be in an optimal, at an optimal threshold. That's cool. And just curious again, um, I mean, I train a few athletes and sometimes – like they'll rock up to training and, and they might be using HRV, the whoop band, 
and then red. But they go to training and they, they don't they don't really get a say in the training. Like you know, they, they could rock up and it's going to be a hard day, hard conditioning day, or hard mm-hmm. gym day. But what 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 are some of the um? Do you know if there's any particular moments uh, that will just kind of like really take you down? And I'm thinking like deadlifts, like obviously deadlifts. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're deadlifting heavy, it can you know um, get you nervous system, you know, jacked up or low rate, low rate. Like, are there particular movements that potentially I can stay away from or go lighter on so they don't really go yeah. in a deeper hole? Right. So there's kind of two things that I, I mentioned there, and, and I'm glad you mentioned deadlift. Dev so one would be any type of heavy compound movement. So it's not even kind of utilizing compound movements that you should stay away from, just like completely stay away from, but just going like super heavy. Um, so that's one of the things that, that I recommend is, is not necessarily stepping away from compound, but just lowering the weight. Uh, the, the biggest one that I see that tends to be the most nervous system taxing would be uh, like high intensity stuff. Um, so doing a lot of work, um, like metabolic conditioning, any type of CrossFit workout. So I work with a lot of CrossFitters or a lot of athletes who like to train with metabolic conditioning. And the thing that I tell them is like, you are already like, it's already intense on your nervous system to begin with. And so if you see that your nervous system is taxed, like this is the last thing that you should be doing. Again, that doesn't mean that you have to just completely push aside exercise. It just means that you need to be smart with it. Now, again, I don't want to pick on CrossFitters, uh, but I'm going to pick on CrossFitters. Across, a lot of CrossFitters get injured. I mean, you see injuries in CrossFit all the time. And a lot of it is, you know, a lot of overreaching and a lot of overtraining. And so one of the things that I always tell my CrossFit group is that I want you to go out there and bust your butt and enjoy, like, your, met, your metabolic conditioning. Like, these, these, these guys and gals love doing it. But just be smart with it. Just utilize the markers and the quantitative data that you have. And HRV, as of right now, is the best window that we have into your nervous system recovery. And we know there's, so, there's research study after research study to show that when HRV is lowered by more than 20%, then this is going to significantly increase the risk of injury. So that's kind of my, my goal is to kind of say like, you know, I don't necessarily even say like limit um, or, or, or remove the movement. So whether it's compound movement or like a cardiovascular or metabolic conditioning exercise, but just be careful with it and not go as heavy on a compound movement and not go as intense on something like metabolic conditioning. Yeah, in Australia, like CrossFit's obviously big, but pretty much every single fitness trainer at the moment, it's high intensity, steady state. And I mean, they advertise for mm-hmm. HIIT training, but it's really the highest density, steady state. And yeah. um, with no warm ups, nothing, and you know, just having yeah. a coffee pre pre and and that's it. So yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you said that because um, yeah. So actually, I mentioned coffee then, like um, the chemical stress. Um, obviously, I imagine bad diet is not going to be good for your HIV. Uh, and that's probably mm-hmm. everyone kind of, I th- I'll, I'll say, I'll, I like to think that everyone knows that if they're having, you know, high lot, a lot of sugar, processed food, that's not going to be good. But what's kind of good, is there any kind of magic potion that is sort of pretty good to get you up? Yeah. Yeah, this is very food related, but it is, is actually no food at all. Um, so actually time restricted eating can be very, very good for HRV. Um, and so, you know, I'm not kind of like out here recommending that you go to, you know, five day water fast, like every, every single week, like you got to eat something. I'm not a breatharian. However, I do think that uh, the research is pretty clear that from a nervous system reset perspective, um, and from just like an overall nutritional intake perspective, that having some level of time restricted eating is really good. And it's also especially important for circadian reset. 
So for me, like that could be like a 16, eight fast, like a 16 hours on, uh, sorry, fast and eight hours on. Um, it could look different for anybody. I think that, you know, if I'm working again with someone who's like more of a crossfitter or more about a metabolic conditioning type individual, then their window is just going to be a little bit smaller on fasting than someone who is, you know, not um, like a lot of the executives that I work with. Um, you know, so that's, that's one way to kind of help is that fasting can actually increase nervous system repair. Um, and, and so that's no food. There are also kind of ways to do it that I, again, I would say is more of removal of different foods than it is, um, an, ex, than an, an inclusion of food. And that's because we know that, like you mentioned, high processed, um, highly inflammatory foods, especially kind of like really, really poor omega six oils, omega nine oils. Uh, these are ones that we really need to watch out, especially if they've been highly oxidized. So, you know, I, 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 I don't subscribe to any type of dietary plan. Like I wouldn't say, you know, like I'm yeah. paleo or keto or anything else like that. But I think a generally a, a little bit of a lower carb, a lower sugar um, kind of intake. And again, just depending too on kind of how glycolytically demanding your exercise is, is going to be, you know, a huge factor as well. But I think just kind of the removal of some of these kind of what we call, I know for you, it'll be different. Actually, I'd love to hear your term. We call it the standard American diet. Uh, yeah. Well, you guys might call it the standard American diet too, because we're all fat over here. We just, call it, we just call it a shit diet, basically. Right. Okay. <laughs> right. Exactly. That we, we should call it like that. But, you know, we got to be all politically correct over here in America. Yeah. <laughs> so, nah, nah. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. You know, it's one of those things that I just say, like, staying away from kind of you know, your, your, your shit food is going to be the most important thing to do. But, you know, I've kind of played around with some uh, dietary things for HRV just to kind of see kind of what they did and, uh, to my overall HRV. And I tracked it a lot um, from some wearable EKGs. One of the things, and I'll just kind of give kind of my, my uh, potent smoothie that I've been making. I, I wasn't big into smoothies just because I like eating food. I didn't really like making smoothies, honestly. But my wife bought a Vitamix. And like once we had a Vitamix, I was like, oh, man, it's sold. Like this thing is amazing. I'm making like, you know, you know, what, what probably would cost me like 20 bucks out at a smoothie store because I put so much shit in it uh, is, you know, cost me hardly anything. But I've been playing around a little bit with some compounds. So I, I use like some berries as kind of like my base and to get some of those antioxidants and polyphenols. And then I use a fair amount of like collagen powder um, for, you know, protein synthesis. And then I'll use um, a fair amount of broccoli sprouts for the sulforaphane that's within broccoli sprouts, huge and potent, like the most potent antioxidant that we know out there. I'll actually put in um, some MCT oil and then I'll do some, a uh, little bit of like stevia or some uh, erythritol um, or some monk fruit extract. And then I'll put in a couple other things that I'm just forgetting now, um, like some probiotic stuff. And uh, I've just been kind of like watching to see what that does to my HRV. And I won't say that it's like significantly bringing it up, but I think that the reduction and maybe some inflammation that I could have, especially from a performance and recovery perspective, especially when I include like a lot of sulforaphane from the broccoli sprouts has really helped to kind of keep my HRV elevated more than kind of having dips, like these transient dips. So, you know, a long-winded answer, but I think that there are compounds that can influence HRV, but nothing that I'm like, hey, you've got to like include this into your diet. I would just say like helping to reduce inflammation and cortisol output, that that in and of itself is going to raise your HRV. And um, when do you have this moment? Do you have it before you go to bed or is it your first meal? Uh, That's typically you- how I break my fast. Yep. Okay. So I, um, I typically will stop eating at about uh, 6 p.m., uh, 5 p.m., 6 p.m., just depending. And then I won't eat again until about 10 uh, the next day, 10 or 11. Um, it just depends on the day. I've, I've cut my fasting window a little bit lower um, here during coronavirus, just mm-hmm. from like an immunological perspective. I've, I've reduced that window a little bit more. 
just in case that fasting window was making me a little more compromised. But, you know, again, just more of me playing around with anything. Uh, but yeah, I basically what I've done is I, I eat that as soon as I'm kind of like ready to kind of like take on the day. And so I'll do like a fasted walk in the morning. And then once I'm done with that, getting some sunshine, um, then I'll, I'll, I'll eat that smoothie. I am. Um... I've been kind of also playing around with it and my magic potion and I tell my clients it works for me, it might not work for you, but it seems to be chicken broth with lots of lemon before I go to sleep. Um, yeah. yeah. Is, that, is there a reason for that or is it just in my head? Like, Yeah, I think it's the collagen. I think it's okay. the collagen. Um, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, are you using like bone broth or is it just like chicken broth? Uh, chicken bone broth, sorry. Oh, chicken bone broth. Yeah, yeah, it's the collagen. Um so that's one of the reasons I put collagen into mine. And sometimes I will put like some kettle and fire, like bone broth into my, my smoothie as well. It just makes for a weird taste sometimes to put it into a smoothie. But so one of the things we know about kind of like what, how, how collagen works, especially of the amino acid profile, is that it can help to downregulate cortisol output. And so because it can help to downregulate cortisol output, then that's also going to be kind of like a way to kind of pull off the gas pedal a little bit and help depress the brake a little bit. So I think that that's a, that's a good potent combination because I'll do that sometimes as well. Just do like a warm cup of bone broth at night. And sometimes I'll mix it and this may sound gross to people, but I like to drink like some reishi tea at night. So a little bit of four sigmatic reishi with some bone broth and maybe like a little bit of stevia. And for me, it is, is does wonders. Oh, that's cool. Because yeah, like, I mean, Oh, again, I wasn't sure if it was in my head, but it seems that my deep sleep improves and uh, therefore the HIV seems to be much better after that little potion. Yeah. Um, well, most people, when they see deep sleep um, go up, they see HRV go up as well um, okay. because that is the re- most restorative. I mean, you could argue that REM is equally restorative, but deep sleep for the most part is the most restorative part of your sleep at night. It's when your heart rate drops the lowest, and so we see HRV kind of linearly correlating with that. It's cool. Well, this kind of is a nice segue to talk about you. Uh, and when I was kind of creeping out on, uh, on, on the web and on your website, uh, you kind of had what you do. And it's cool. Yeah. And, and I'm quite curious. And so I have a question. So first thing you do, it seems you, or sorry, you do this all the time. You measure everything, sleep, food, heart variability, yeah. uh, which we kind of covered now anyway. Uh, but I was curious, what do you do to measure your food? To measure food? Yeah. 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 So, you know, it's one of those things that I used to be very anal about it and measure it kind of down to the T. I would weigh everything. Um, I would kind of macro split everything. Um, I just don't do it anymore because a couple of things. Number one, I keep my diet very basic. Um, so my diet stays very basic just because I don't like getting too crazy with things. And so I eat a lot of the same things and I have like almost like a weekly schedule. And I know that sounds boring, but it keeps me on track. I kind of know what to expect. Like, so for instance, I knew that today is, is Tuesday for me. So Tuesday night, I know that my wife and I were always going to have sockeye salmon. So we grill sockeye salmon. We're going to have uh, a little bit of sweet potatoes. And then we're going to do a little bit of, um, oh shoot, now I'm forgetting it. What else do we eat? We ate sweet potatoes tonight and cauliflower mash. Um, and so I knew I was going to have that. And I typically top it off with some, you know, berries for dessert. So like some raspberries and blackberries. Um, and so I kind of just have this routine schedule where I know what I'm going to, going to take in. And for me, like, I guess I still do a little bit of a macro split. Like I keep things a little bit more lower carb, um, especially throughout the day. And then nighttime is like my carbohydrate refeeding period. Um, so I'll exercise, you know, like four thirty or so four o'clock, four thirty, And then afterwards I'll have a little bit more of a, of an increased level of carbohydrate, which can help with 
uh, overall uh, synthesis and, and growth of muscle, but then also too with sleep at night and how it can help out with sleep. And so that's, that's kind of generally what I do. So it's not necessarily a way of measuring. It's just kind of a knowing my body and how my body responds because I've been doing it for so long now. There was a lot of tinkering initially and finding like what worked for me and what didn't. And now I just kind of have it and like I'm not letting go of it. And luckily my wife loves it too. And my kids love it too. So we all just do the same thing. What, what is your kind of macro split between, I guess, protein, fat and carbs at a moment? Yeah, it's, you know, in general, I'm a, I'm a pretty fast metabolizer. Like I've always been a fast metabolizer. So I think I can just tile and I do a fair amount of intense, like lifting and, and, and a lot of, uh, exercise. So I, I think because of what I do being a little bit more glycolytically demanding, I can handle a little bit higher carbohydrate than some people, um, kind of who are, you know, either looking to lose weight or those who are looking to kind of perform at a higher level. So for me, in general, um, I would say that it's kind of like a higher fat, um, higher protein, and then a maybe kind of moderate to low level of carbohydrate. So in general, I don't even know kind of how many grams I'm taking in of fat and protein. Uh, but in general, like with uh, carbohydrate, I would say it's probably 100 grams or less a day. Sometimes just depending on like a refeed day. Sometimes I'll refeed on the weekends and I'll have like 150, 160 grams of carbohydrate. But for the most part, I keep it generally lower, lower carb. And uh, this is random question. Uh, curious. And protein intake seems to be a um, bit of a trend at the moment, you know, and some people are saying don't have too much protein because you'll activate your mTORs and allow you quickly. Some people say, mm-hmm. no, we don't have enough protein. But a question I have for you, like how much protein can we process in one seating? So I guess where I'm heading with this is, um, um, Lot, lot of lot, for me, I've been trying to go more higher protein, uh, but then mm-hmm. uh, I read somewhere that um, you, your body can only process thirty grams of protein per meal. Is that mm-hmm. true, or is that any? Yeah, any value? so yeah, I, I'd have to see more hardcore, like hard and defined research to really support like the statement of it only being able to process thirty grams of protein. Um, I know that d- depending on the amino acid split, the processing of different amino acids can be different. There's thresholds for them, but protein, kind of as you know, a general rule of thumb, I haven't seen good research to say that you know, for muscle synthesis and, and pro overall protein synthesis that we could, there's a threshold for it. Okay, cool. um, you know, and, and one of the things you mentioned like mTOR and mTOR, like I think has been villainized in a way that it shouldn't be. Um, so, you know, there's some individuals who came out who are like, yeah, keep, keep the protein low because you don't want to stimulate mTOR. Well, you try like not, not stimulating mTOR and you're going to die at some point because we have to stimulate mTOR. Like that is a pathway that is extremely important and it's extremely important for muscle growth too. So actually this may sound crazy, but I am looking to stimulate mTOR when I go work out. Like that is the whole idea is to stimulate that pathway. Um, but a lot of people are like, Oh no, I got to keep the protein low. Can't drink my protein workshake, you know, pre or post workout. And I'm like, no, I think you're overthinking this. Um, I think that this is something that has been villainized, kind of like cholesterol is villainized, kind of like, you know, eggs were villainized and other fats are villainized. I think we're going to find too that yes, there are times where you do want to have the suppression of the mTOR pathway, uh, but not all the time. I mean, it wasn't it wouldn't make sense from an evolutionary standpoint to to, uh, to minimize exposure there. I'm stoked you said it because I still want to look like Brad Pitt from Fight Club. Um, so. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. So next thing on the list is yeah, you you earth ground yourself, um, and it's it's a term that's. Um, 
Yogi's been using it for a long time, and and I know it's probably the whole new it's a whole podcast on it. But like in short, why is grounding so important? Yeah, you know, I've been doing this now for a few years um, since I found out about it. Um, a guy named Clint Ober, um, who wrote the book on earthing and grounding, and kind of came across it, um, was was super interesting because he was essentially working. Um, I mean, sorry, living amongst kind of some Aborigines tribes, um, kind of within. Uh, uh, within the context, I forgot where he was, but it was it, basically what ended up happening was he was finding that kind of from a healing perspective, he, like all these individuals just take off their shoes and be on the bare ground. Uh, and so he's starting to get becoming interested in it and saying, okay, well, is this some like woo-woo way of healing or would this actually like work? And so when we started looking at kind of like body energetics and looking at kind of really focusing on the body as being a human battery and a guy named Robert Becker wrote an awesome book called the body electric on this, which is really a science packed book. Uh, if we want to recharge our body, which is bioelectrical, then we can do so in many different ways. But one of the best and easy ways that's very much a part of our uh, you know, ancestral you know, evolution is to be one with the earth. And again, I'm, that's going to sound woo-woo, but I want to break it up to anybody who might think it sounds woo-woo. But we are very disconnected from the earth, um, which has a natural magnetic um, uh, output, um, a negative ion output. If you think about it, like for most people, they're not stepping, you know, foot onto earth at all anymore. They have shoes with rubber soles. They're inside, you know, they're in huge cities where all they have is concrete. And so there's a disconnection between earth. And you think about all the electronics that were around emitting kind of a ton of positive ions. It disrupts the battery that is our body. And so one of the things that we know with earthing is that around the earth um, at any given moment, there are thousands among thousands of lightning strikes that actually charge the earth. And so a way to kind of ground yourself back to the earth, um, or we call it earthing, would be to take your feet off and put it into a, a direct connection with the earth, into grass, onto dirt, whatever it may be that has a direct connection to earth's surface. And then what you see is, is that your actual body positivity will go down and you'll get more of a net negative charge, which our cells function on a net negative charge. It's, it's needed. This is uh, innately known within biology that we are negatively net charged human beings, uh, but we become disrupted because of not being grounded to the earth. So each day I'll get out there and just walk for a while, typically about 30 minutes to an hour. If I get more out there than that, then the better, because I want more sunlight as well. But I charge myself by earthing um, and grounding. And it's one of those things that it's made me feel more energetic. It's made me feel more lively. Like I just feel like I can tackle more when I do this type of exercise and it's free and it costs you absolutely yeah. nothing other than a little bit of your time. So go out there and meditate in the grass. <laughs> that, does it have to be through the feet? Can I just lie on the sand or on the grass, like in my speedos or yeah. do I, does it have to yeah. be through the feet? So, yeah. So no, it doesn't have to be through the feet. It can be anywhere. Yeah. So oh. you can, you can lie down, you can sit, you just want bare skin touching the ground. Um, so if I, you know, just took my hand and put it down onto the earth and that connection is going to go through my body. But basically what Robert Becker has said in his book is that the more place that you have to connect, so the more surface area to connect, the more energy um, input you're going to have, uh, cause it's going to have less distance to travel. The electricity is going to have less distance to travel. And so because of that, you're going to get more, more potent flow. Um, so for me, it's like, I'm going to the beach, like I want to have like, you know, barely any short on, and then I'm just laying flat out on the earth, especially on the wet sand, because that we know that water is the biggest conductor of electricity. So I am all about getting to the beach, getting out in the ocean. Like the best thing that you can do is become a surfer. So I know you guys in Australia probably jive with that pretty well. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Actually, it's funny. I'm not trying to be funny, but like 
you know, if you got tanning, like you feel better. And I'm sure it's obviously vitamin D rolls out, but like you do feel better when you're tanning. Like, so I guess. Without a doubt. Um, yeah. um okay, here comes, I'll, I love this one. And this one I want to ask you. Uh, you stick infrared light up your nose. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What's, uh, what's All that right. about? So it's a great question. A lot of people see, you know, either pictures about that or they see me on Instagram and they're like, what is this guy doing? So this is more of a biohack. So this is leveraging technology to uh, increase and optimize performance. I always say nobody should be doing things like this. If you haven't optimized your basic foundational things like nutrition, like exercise, um, the, the, these are things and management of stress, even these are things to help me optimize my functioning. So I do stick red and infrared lights up my nose and I wear like a transcranial red light emitting diodes on my head. And these are, these are systems called V light systems, V I E L I G H T. Um, and, and they're either red or infrared light, but basically this is from the field of what's called photobiomodulation. So photobiomodulation is using light as an energy for healing. So we know that sunlight um, it can be very healing, especially from a vitamin D standpoint, but also too from a circadian uh, uh, rhythm set standpoint, and then also too from mitochondrial enhancement. So the reason that I stick lights on my nose and on my head is the same reason why people might use like a juve panel or like a panel for red light therapy. And that's because again, I'm charging up the cell. And the reason I'm charging up the cell is we know that mitochondria, uh, which are the powerhouse, the energy powerhouses of our cell, they can actually feed off of light. So yes, they convert light into energy. And the light that helps to stimulate more ATP production from mitochondria is red and infrared light. So the reason it goes up my nose is typically for more like cognitive enhancements. And we know that there's great research uh, from, from overall cognitive acuity and ability uh, from utilizing infrared and red light up my nose. So basically it's a way to kind of power charge my brain really quick or get sunlight to my brain really quick. Now, again, I don't like to say I, I don't replace the, you know, my exposure of the sun with uh, these, these biohacking devices, but I use them to help enhance effects. So yeah, it's one of those things that I love doing. A lot of people um, always, always love commenting on it too. So I love uh, having that conversation. How long do you do it for 10 minutes or is it like how long does it usually or how long would you expose v- yourself to red yeah. light? The V-Lite system is 25 minutes. Um, cool. So I put, no, sorry, 20 minutes. And I don't go any past that. Just like the juve panel is like 20 minutes and I don't go any time past that. And the reason being is because it works as a semi-level of hormetic stress and actually an overexposure to it can be detrimental to your cells. Um, it, can, it can actually damage cells. So I only do it for 20 minutes. And the V-Lite system that I wear on my head and up my nose, I only will do that like uh, maybe three or four times a week. Like my juice panel, I'll do like three or four times as well. Uh, but I try not to overdo it. And I don't think there's research to say that you can overdo it. Like if you do it every single day. Um, you know, over 20 minutes you can, but every single day I just choose to kind of like give my body a little bit of rest and let it to kind of, uh, repair on its own a little bit so that it doesn't become, uh, you know, adjusted to needing to have red light therapy in order for, for it to function optimally. That's cool. Um, cold showers and sit in an ice bath. Now, um, that's kind of a bit of a trend at the moment and everyone's doing it, but question Mm -hmm. for you was when do you do it? Uh, do you do it when you wake up? Do you do it before you sleep? Yeah, it's, uh, that's a really great question. So I'll tell you when I don't do it, and then I'll tell you when I do it. I never do it um, generally within about an hour, under an hour after I work out, because I don't want to blunt the hormetic stress or the hormetic effects of of the stress that I had in my workout. Um, so I don't want to do that. 
But in general, I'll do it about an hour after I work out. So a lot of times I'll eat dinner. And then after I'm done with dinner, I'll go do either a hot, cold contrast shower. I'll do a cold plunge. Um, So I'll just fully immerse myself in a cold tub. Uh, And, you know, I'm doing it basically from a muscular repair perspective, but also more importantly, from a nervous system uh, uh, repair perspective. I go back to this word hormetic stress or hormesis, and that's what it is. It's a state of hormesis. So it's putting the body under a highly stressful state so that it can repair and build back more resilience. And so, uh, you know, the, the wonders that cold therapy has done for my nervous system are like exponential. Like I, I really accredit a lot of cold exposure and cold therapy to why um, I feel as good as I do most days. Um, I, I love it. I hated it. first. Oh, my God, I hated it. It was awful. I actually hated cold showers more than I hated doing cold plunges. Uh, and the reason being is because cold plunges, I'm like, I know it's going to suck. Like I go in here and I just like have to sit there for a few minutes and I'm good. Whereas like the cold shower, it's just like it's, it's hitting you. Like it just, it's, it's rough. So I'll take a cold plunge over a cold shower any day, but I'm used to them now. Now I just love them. And, and, and we didn't really, I don't think we touched on this, but it's also one of the good ways to improve your HRV as well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it does stimulate yeah. the vagus nerve. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, your vagus nerve runs up through your spinal cord and one of the ways it innervates is through the side of your neck. So I tell people that when they're doing a cold plunge or when they're taking a cold shower, make sure it's getting the side of your neck and the back of your neck because that's where your vagus nerve runs through. So a lot of people will kind of like sit up in a cold shower kind of like this. I'm sorry, sit up in a cold plunge and have like their shoulders up. I tell them go down to the neck, get down to the neck and that helps to stimulate better vagal tone. Um, No sunglasses. Uh, is that mainly because of you want blue light? Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a great question. So I don't put on sunglasses, and I've adjusted to it. I know a lot of people feel like they haven't are, aren't able to adjust to it, but most people are able to adjust to being out in, in full spectrum sun. And the reason that I I uh, that I take my sunglasses or I don't take them off, I don't put them on. The reason that I do that is because the sun is emitting full spectrum sun, and the way that we can get and digest and I like to use the word digest the light and use it for energy is through yes our skin, but the most predominant place is through our eyes. And so you know we are we have kind of like a rampant um, kind of experience, especially here in the U.S. of like all of this macula degeneration of the eyes, especially in kids too that are using devices all the time. And they're just getting one spectrum of the light. It's getting like a lot of blue light, a lot of green light, and they're not getting nearly enough full spectrum light, including UV light. So one of the things that I like to do is get full spectrum light on the eyes um, and not blunt kind of that, that, that experience by filtering out light. You know, it's one of the things that too, like you know, sitting behind me here is my window and these windows are paneled as they're like UV blocking windows. So like even if I'm sitting here while kind of getting sun and it's getting you know closer to closer to dusk right now, uh, I'm not getting full spectrum sun because it's blocking UV. So for me, I'm like, okay, I need to get out and get full spectrum. Best way to do it is through the eyes and on the skin. So that's why I don't wear any sunglasses. Do you wear sunglasses ever? Or would you wear them in afternoons or? Oh, you know, I it won't. I won't say that I would never wear them because like sometimes I've been out to like the beach on vacay and it's it's like. When I'm when I'm on vacation, like I want to enjoy the experience of time, and sometimes the glare is just awful, so I might yeah. put some on for a few for a little bit. Most of the time, I'll just throw a hat on, mm-hmm. and that and then I'll kind of do it. Um, but yeah, I would say that 99.9% of the time, I, I won't wear sunglasses. And it's not me being judgmental towards people who would wear them. It's just one of those things that I feel better when I don't wear them. Honestly, yeah, that's really what it comes down to. No, it's cool. Uh, barefoot outside. Um, that's I assume just for grounding purposes. 
Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's grounding. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm doing. Or I'll wear my earth runners, which are grounding sandals. Um, ah, so cool. these are sandals that actually have kind of like a copper rod underneath them. And then these copper wirings that run through the laces so that when you're connected uh, or when you're wearing those and they're kind of strapped around your feet, it will actually take in the earth's negative ions and kind of work as grounding, even with shoes on. So you can do it if you're kind of going around town. That's cool. Um, blue blocking glasses. Um, now, <laughs> Two questions on that. Uh, so we kind of touched on that. Uh, idea is to actually block the blue light from screens and going before bed. Which brand do you use? And how do you know what's good and what's bad? Like, is there good or bad um, blue light blocking glasses? Okay, it's a great question. I mean, I get this one asked all the time. So, yes, I wear blue light blocking glasses. So as soon as we're done with this call, I'll, I'll put them on. Um, I actually have like 10 pairs in here that I love. Um, and the brand that I use is Raw Optics, R-A Optics. My buddy, um, uh, Matt Maruka, owns this company, and they are phenomenal. They're more pricey than if you get on like Amazon and buy kind of one of the cheap pairs. But one of the problems with some of these cheaper pairs that you might get from Amazon or you might get online is that they're not fully blocking the spectrum of lights that we, that we need to be blocking in the evening or even during the day when we're wearing on the computer. And the other problem with them too is, is that some of them are block, blocking way too much. So if you put them on at like six or seven o'clock at night, you know, when dusk is here, um, it might just make you like incredibly tired when you shouldn't be like necessarily winding down yet. Maybe you've got work or something else to do. So these are more like an orangish, reddish, amber type colored lens by Raya Optics. They block up to 550 nanometers. So that's right at like kind of the high end of the greenish range getting into yellow. And then of course, we uh, see all orange and red light through them. So most things kind of look more reddish or orange when you're wearing them, but they don't strain my eyes like the completely red ones that like if I put them on and I'm going to want to sleep in like five minutes. So I love raw optics. I mean, it's one of those things that like that is a non-negotiable for me. So in the evenings I'm putting on those, those glasses and like, there's nothing that is going to keep me from not wearing those things. So raw is my brand. Like there's other good brands like blue blocks is a really good one out there. Like I love blue blocks. Um, I just, I'm, I'm friends with Matt Maruka of the raw of Ross company. So I like his a lot. His are also made to be super stylish. So a lot of the blue light blockers, I mean, they are just like, they're like friggin' eye birth control. Like, you know, like no one's coming around you with those things on. So I like to wear uh, raw optics because they're pretty stylish and they protect, um, you know, me from all the negative blue light that I don't want in the evening. Now they are, they do look after me. Uh, so I get a 10% discount from them as well. And, nice, good, and, good. It's, and it's amazing actually, like, again, I was like, I always get, you know, like, I don't want to promote the benefits too much because you don't know if it's you know, placebo or whatever, but like, I'm glad you said that before about getting sleepy because every time I put them on, I, I'm, I'm gone, like literally five, 10 minutes and I'm oh, literally yeah. gone. So it's, it does yeah, work. Yeah. So. Um, now this one here, uh, red light glasses, uh, What's wait which wait which one is it? I think I said red light glasses. Did I red light glasses. Yeah, like, I might. Have, oh, like, maybe yeah. I wonder if it's like the red red light or the red lens glasses. Maybe, maybe? yeah, maybe that was it. Yeah, that's what you're thinking about. Yeah, so the the raw optics red lens. Cool. You know, I wear raw's clear ones as well during the daytime. Like if I'm doing a lot of day work uh, on the computer, like I try to not be on the computer nearly as much. So. Maybe, maybe that's what it was. Yeah, talking cool. about like the, the no sunglasses, but then wearing like the red red light glasses or the red lens glasses. Um, meditate. Now, uh, meditation again, mm -hmm. breath work. We know the benefits. I think most people are across yeah. that. But when do you meditate? 
Yeah. So generally in the morning and in the evening. So uh-huh. I, I like to have a split practice. So I'll generally do about 20 minutes in the morning uh, when I wake up. It's one of the first things that I do. So I like to do a gratitude journal. I have a five minute um, gratitude journal that I do. And then after that, I'll do a little bit of breath work and some meditation, typically mindfulness based meditation. Uh, but I also do love doing um, some breath work as well. And I, I include that as a part of my meditative skills. So I, I, I uh, subscribe, I guess you should, could say, to like a buteco style of breathing patterns. This is Patrick McKean's oxygen advantage type work. And so I like doing a lot of slow, light breathing um, that's really increasing kind of a hypercapnic or apnea type state. So it gives you that little bit of air hunger, increases CO2. And we know that that can actually have a lot of influence on vagal tone, can reduce stress, can reduce anxiety. So I love meditation in the evening and uh, at, at nighttime. I sometimes just kind of intermix it with a little bit of breath work as well. Cool. Um, the last thing, um, biohacking. Now, um, I was just wondering, like, what are you pondering about in a moment or what are you kind of experimenting in a moment uh, in terms of wellness, performance? Yeah, it is, you know, biohacking is one of those interesting terms, right? Because a lot of people, like, they throw out that term and it gets confusing and, you know, we have kind of different camps. Like, it's this weird thing right now. And so, you know what, the way, the way that I really look at biohacking is all about optimization. So it's how can we take um, kind of the foundation of what we have and then optimize it by leveraging technology or different techniques. And, you know, one of the big things that I'm looking at in regards to biohacking right now, I actually have it on my foot. I'll raise it up on the computer screen. It's called a, uh, you can't see, it looks like it's like this ankle break or like a ankle alert system, uh, like under house arrest <laughs> or something. Uh, but it's called the Apollo Neuro device. It actually sends kind of like these small biophysical waves, which are like sound waves, but they vibrate. Um, and they send it kind of through the leg or at the wrist and the radial artery. I um, mean, it's supposed to kind of what they what they kind of um, say it does is that it's supposed to signal vagal tone. It's supposed to help increase vagal tone. Now, um, you know, I think the you know, it's it's still out as to whether or not that's actually happening. And I've been doing some measurement, but I've seen some appreciable results, which is kind of neat. Um, so I like that as a cool biohack. I also use another system. And this is a company that I work closely with um, and I'm affiliated with. So I'll just kind of say it even before I mention them. <laughs> but but I do love them. And the reason I'm affiliated with them is because I've used their stuff for a while now and love it. But this is uh, the New Calm system. And so if you've ever heard of Nucalm, Nucalm is like these uh, biophysical discs. And then I know it's going to sound woo-woo because it is kind of a little bit odd, but it's these biophysical discs that you put on top of uh, your wrist. It's kind of right across the radial artery in your wrist, um, very similar to a position you put the Apollo Neuro Band on. And what it's supposed to do is that um, you, you wear kind of like these, these headphones that I'm wearing now and you play these audio tapes that, you know, are, they spent hours among hours, thousands of hours kind of putting these things together. And they're supposed to, that sound is supposed to resonate kind of with that disc that's on your wrist. And that is, again, supposed to stimulate your vagal tone and calm you down. Now, granted, Nucalm is way more expensive than Apollo Neuro. The Apollo Neuro is like, I want to say like $300, whereas like the Nucalm system is like a couple grand. Like it's really expensive. However, uh, when I put that on, like it helps me to simulate like deep sleep. Like I recover when I put on this new calm system and I sleep on it again, I'm affiliated with them. So I understand if people are like this guy's biased, like he, he works with them. Uh, yeah, I, I am definitely biased. Um, but the reason I'm biased and the reason I reached out to work with them is because I loved it so much. So new calm is really good. And you know, one of the other things that I've just been kind of messing with, I don't want to say this is a biohack whatsoever, but it would just be kind of different herbs and supplements to help with sleep from an HRV perspective and to increase sleep. 
And, you know, I, I use a lot of different things like glycine and L-theanine and phosphatidylserine and, and some other, com- you know, compounds. But one company just put one out. Um, it's by, the company's called Neurohacker Collective. They make a, a supplement called Qualia Mind, which is probably one of the best nootropics I've ever had, legal nootropics, I'd say, that I've ever had. Uh, but they, they came out with one called Qualia Night, and it's like just kind of like this shotgun approach to, um, to to basically sleep health and so i love this as a supplement base it has like pretty much everything that i take in like separate bottles all in one bottle um so that's that's pretty cool and then you know um you know as as, as i mentioned you know to ben greenfield and i are buddies and so one of the things is that he uh he's got his company keon and so keon has a lot of amazing supplements and they send me stuff over all the time uh, which is really cool and one of the things that i do is i love their aminos so keon aminos is probably my favorite supplement that they have and i've been taking that a lot at night actually to assist with sleep and to help with some neurotransmitter i'm kind of uh, replenishing and so one of the things that i found is that like it just helps me get i've been getting better deeper sleep with these keon aminos i've been getting better hrv readings and so again, not necessarily a biohack, I would say. I'm not really leveraging technology, but it's uh, taking it in a way that's maybe unorthodox. Because you know, normally people are taking aminos with you know their kind of workout stack or their workout stops. And for me, I'm doing it mostly like in the evening as well to help with sleep. So that's what I've been playing around with. I've had a lot of time to play around with stuff during the COVID era, uh, but that's, those are kind of my primary. I'll uh, I'll put all that in the show notes as well, and I'll get some links cool. for people to check out. Um. Jay, so awesome to have you. Um, before we go, like, where can people find you? And if people in Australia want to kind of reach out and get some work or consulting done, uh, where, you, where is the best place? Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure being on too. But yeah, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Dr. J. Wiles. So that's at D-R-J-A-Y-W-I-L-E-S. Um, also, my, my, I have two different websites. Uh, one is my personal kind of branding website, if you will. That's drjwiles.com. And then my company, consulting company, if you want to reach out to me, that's thrive-wellness.com. So my company is Thrive Wellness and Performance. You can reach me at thrive-wellness.com. That's awesome. I'll, um, I'll put it on the show notes as well. And when I, when I push it out on Instagram, I'll make sure I'll tag you in as well and so people can uh, check good. it out. Uh, but Jay... Thank you so much for your time. Um, it was a real pleasure, and yeah, keep in touch. I'll have. I'm sure there'll be more questions from my kind of community. Yes, um, yeah. So we'll, I'll, I'll make sure I send them through to you as well. So, um, yeah, great to have you. Yeah, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. It's a fun conversation, especially when I can get deep into HRV and biohacking. I'll do it all day long, man. Cool.